You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, our guest is someone that uh, many of you have asked me to have on, Chris Arnotti. He writes for The Guardian. Uh, he's got a, a PhD from John Hopkins. Uh, he spent 20 years working on Wall Street, I believe doing bond trading. But you'll find him now in The Guardian and on Twitter, documenting addiction and poverty in America. One of the more fascinating guys that uh, that I've been exposed to through my work here at Strong Towns. Chris, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. I would like to start by just knowing how someone with a degree in physics, I know what it takes to get a degree in physics. You do a lot of math and uh, a lot of theoretical work. And then, you know, works on, on Wall Street. Did I get the bond trading right? Yeah, you got the bond trading right. That's correct. What winds up doing what you're doing today? How, what was the career arc and the transition that, that got you here? <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one to answer. Um, the bumper sticker I, I often say as a joke is, um, I just wanted to get my soul back. You know, I feel like at some point during my um, my 20 years in Wall Street near the end, I kind of got basically frustrated, disenchanted with, with what I was doing, um, where I was, and what my life had become, and felt like, I needed to do something different. What that different was, I didn't know, but I knew that what I was doing wasn't working for me. I, I didn't feel good about myself. I didn't feel good about what I was doing. Um, I didn't feel awful, but I, I didn't feel good about it. And so I started going on, but I, I just simply just go, started going on these very long walks in New York City, primarily walks in neighborhoods that people will tell you not to go um, because they're too dangerous or or I'm too white. And these are long walks, you know, 20 miles. Uh, although I've walked a lot of my life as kind of a way to just kind of relieve stress or just kind of see things. There was no structure to them other than, hey, I'm just going to walk all day and see kind of where thing events. 20 miles is an, is an epic walk for a day. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I mean, at the time, you know, like I said, I walked a lot. So <laughs> I used to walk to work and back, which was, you know, each way was three miles. So I was, but the, the, where I was walking was different. I was walking basically in places people tell you not to go. Um, you know, I just be blunt, poor black neighborhoods, poor Hispanic neighborhoods. You know, there's less poor whites in New York City than there are in other, other parts of the country. But basically places that people said were dangerous and people said not to go. I was just generally talking to whoever would talk to me and just kind of letting events take me where they took me. And I started seeing through those walks, both, you know, by listening to people and listening to their life stories, just how much privilege I had. Um, and I, I didn't think of myself, I, I knew I had privilege, but I didn't realize that, you know, but I kind of considered myself to be pretty open-minded. I was liberal. I, I read three papers. I, you know, gave money to nonprofits. I, I voted Democrat. I, I did all those things that make people feel like, you know, they're they're at least addressing the issues of inequality um, at, at some symbolic level. But I started realizing, I mean, just the depth viscerally of how, you know, even with good intentions, unless you really kind of just walk the walk, so to speak, you you. You, you just come with so much privilege. And I started realizing that what I was seeing in these neighborhoods, despite that, was entirely different from what I was seeing as portrayed in the media, including the liberal media, including the New York Times, including well-intentioned you know, outlets who were trying their best to kind of give a most sympathetic view towards these, these neighborhoods. But I was seeing – what I was seeing was a lot more frustration – a lot more dignity as well, a lot more um, community in places that people said were wastelands. You know, they weren't wastelands. There was a lot going on. There was a lot of dignity. There was a lot of community. And I started documenting those, wanting to document those both at a personal level. I wanted to do it, but at a political level, I wanted to show that, you know, that these neighborhoods that we had, we had created 
weren't wastelands and they were basically filled with people doing their best to struggle against a system that was stacked against them. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in a small town in the south in central Florida, um, 500 people. People don't think of Florida as the south, but the part of Florida I'm from is very southern. The adjoining town where I went to high school had a two factories and a railroad track that went through the town, and on one side of the town was the blacks, and the other side of the town was the whites. And I had grown up in the 70s, and that, that was kind of my, my background. My It was a very working-class town, um, very conservative, um, but my parents were a bit different. They were My dad was was German and had, had escaped the war, and so he was a professor. So it was a bit of an odd way to grow up as something of an outsider in a, in a very um, poor working-class town. And I don't want to get all Oprah on you or anything, but... You can get all Oprah on me. <laughs> well, I'm an engineer, so I'm not... Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea, did being this kind of odd person in a very small town and then transferring literally to the other end of the, the population density spectrum in a short period of time, is this part of what I think gives you a unique insight? Kind of growing up, I was growing up, I was always something of a watcher because, you know, you can't you don't really ever fit in. And then being on Wall Street, I was also a bit of an oddity. I mean, I didn't I didn't have the usual Wall Street pedigree. I'd come from a PhD program in physics. It eventually became what Wall Street was, but I was one of the first ones to come with, you know, with a, with a science background to be kind of what they call the rocket scientists, the engineers. And so in both cases, I never felt entirely at home, as it were. I never felt fully included not 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 in a bad way, but I just didn't feel like this is this is you know my people as it were. It was sometime in like two years into these walks when I went into Hunts Point, which um, is in the Bronx. It's 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 touted as New York's poorest neighborhood. It's considered the most dangerous neighborhood, which you know is a bad label to have and isn't fair. I mean, statistically, it may be true, but there's a lot of a lot of wonderful people in the neighborhood and. It's when I walked into Hunts Point, um, I guess in 2012, um, uh, when I was literally told not to go to Hunts Point. I said, well, okay, I'm going to go to Hunts Point then because everything you've told me in the past, you know, you meaning the kind of the media, the kind of general general stereotypes had been wrong. And so I walked into Hunts Point and I ended up spending the next three years basically becoming very close friends with a what a, what a street family, a street family of homeless addicts, about, about 20, 30, 40 of them who lived under bridges and then crack houses, you know, be spending time with them. And I mean, really spending time with them, not just going up to take a picture and then running off. I meant, you know, driving them across country to visit relatives, um, visiting them in jail, um, taking them to detox, visiting them and going to court with them, taking, you know, bringing them home as you would any friend for dinner and, just really becoming part of their lives, I felt for the first time that this is what I was, you know, this is what I wanted to do. This is the right place for me. Being here, writing and photographing and, and, and you know, just being immersed in a situation that a lot of people didn't want to be in. How does it change from the initial walk, the initial contact where you say, like, I'm, I'm exploring an area that's taboo and taking a photo and then walking on. What did you discover when you got to know people more deeply? More than just, and I'm, I'm not going to put words in your mouth or even suggest this, but more than just like a zoo exhibit uh, or a museum exhibit, but, but actual in-depth human being. What, what was that transition like? Well, it's rewarding on, on a personal level. I, I'm still friends with, with many, many people that I met then in 2012 and the ones who haven't died or the ones who aren't in jail um, and or the ones who haven't turned on me because, you know, addiction is a crazy thing. Um, it makes people, makes people hard to deal with. Um, but from that sense, it's very rewarding. You know, you get to, you get to meet people who are, you wouldn't have ever met, but it, it's hard. You know, if any of your listeners, and I'm sure many of them have, have addicts who are, have, have relatives who are addicts, have made themselves, have gone through an addiction, have, personal friends or, or, or family members or loved ones um, or, you know, spouses, uh, brothers and sisters. It's, it's, it's really tough. It's really tough to deal with someone who, to get close to someone who's going through this, who is in this lifestyle. 
it's tough on two levels. It's tough personally, just because, you know, there's, there's no good decisions. Whatever you do is, is always seems wrong, but it's also tough. Others who view what you're doing. I always say that I'm not a journalist. I'm, I say that because the, the ethics of journalism doesn't allow this, isn't built for this. The ethics of journalism is built for basically parachuting in, getting a picture, getting a story, then leaving. It's not built to handle the complexities that come with what do you do if your subject, I hate that term, but what do you do if your subject you know, is overdosing? What do you do if your subject is is in heroin withdrawal and needs 20 bucks to shoot up before they'll go to detox? What do you do if you're your, you know, your friend is out prostituting and they're taking a bar of Xanax and you think they need to be in the hospital and they don't want to go to the hospital. I mean, what do you do? You don't just walk on. You, you know, do you help them? Do you not help them? How do you help them? And I chose to always use the rule that I help them as I would help any friend or a relative. And that's not how journalism is built. Journalism is built to keep a wall between yourself and your subject and to move on. I found at a very personal level, and I'm kind of air my pet peeve here, is that when I when I started writing about what I was doing, mainstream media looked at me and said, "You're doing it wrong. You're you're getting involved. Uh, you're, this is unethical." And my response was basically, "Sorry, I don't know what your rating of your um, of your podcast is, but my my response was you. I happen to be in a situation where." I don't need to write for a journal. Now, when I ended up writing for The Guardian, eventually I, I followed their rules because that's what you do. But the initial work was one in which it's very hard. It's very hard because you get intermixed with people who have very complex lives. Whether the media wants to believe it or not, if you are a journalist, you come with a lot of privilege. And the rules and ethics of journalism is about never letting your privilege you know, not dealing with that privilege that you have. And so it, it, it got to be very complex. Now, overall, it was immensely rewarding. It was rewarding enough that I, I mean, mentally rewarding, emotionally rewarding, um, spiritually rewarding enough that I quit my job. I walked away from my job on Wall Street and I dedicated myself fully to this, which didn't pay anything. Um, so I went from making a lot of money um, to making no money. But that, I mean, it was rewarding enough to me at a personal level that I was willing to make that choice. There's a statement that you wrote on Twitter. You, you're very active on Twitter. People often send me things that you have written. There's one statement that you made that I've been mentally hung up with and kind of been struggling in my brain to process. And it's the one that kind of prompted me to want to reach out to you and have you on the podcast. I suspect you'd have a, a great deal to say about this because it was kind of the summation of a bunch of things you had written. But you wrote that listening to economists got us into this mess and listening to sociologists will get us out. You're someone who has lived both of those lives. Essentially, the bond trading is a very economist-heavy uh, exercise. I always say jokingly, say I... I got a 20-year degree in economics. Right. Yeah, the, the idea that we can influence you know, people's lives through essentially the adjustment of, of bond rates is a very kind of powerful and seductive thing. On the other side of the equation now, you've had this very in-depth experience. Can we talk about both sides of that statement and maybe start with the first side? The economists got us into this mess. But what I mean by that is effectively – we policymakers, I, I call, I call basically my past self, and I put into that camp people who are very scientists, rationally based people who have advanced degrees in economics, numbers based, kind of people who are very good with data and numbers, the the old quantitative sorts. I put them in the campus of what I call the front row kids, people who have always sat in the front row of everything and always strive to be the best. Uh, at everything educationally. And I think we've kind of handed the keys of the world over to the front row kids, um, the economists, who look at problems and address problems, not by going on walks, not by hanging out in crack houses, not by, you know, but by only looking at the data. So they look at Hunts Point and they say, oh, this is dangerous. This is bad. It's, Hunts Point and neighborhoods like it are just 
a negative contribution and a, and a spreadsheet that gets mixed in with positive contributions and you know has to be addressed and it's addressed from a distance. We make these decisions, we the economists, the numbers base, make these decisions that look to say, hey, we're going to maximize. We want to maximize things. We want to you know, we want to maximize GDP and we want to you know, minimize uh, frictions. We want to make the world higher growth and more efficient. And so there will be losers and winners. Basically, we want the, the, the you know the sum of all the cells to be positive. And so we don't really look at the negative contributions and ask what do they mean. For instance, like on free trade, we say, well, free trade's a positive. It's it's great. It's wonderful. Um, it's positive because the winners win more than the losers lose, so it's a positive sum proposition, so let's do it. But the thing is, we don't look at the losers. And what I've learned over the last two years when I went out from the Bronx and I got in my car and I drove all across the country and I spent two years, put 125,000 miles on my car in two years, visiting the losers, the Rust Belt, the, the towns that have lost their factories, the towns that have have our negative contributions to that spreadsheet from um, NAFTA, they've lost everything. They haven't just lost the factory. Once the factory is gone, they lost all forms of community and all forms of meaning. And then the churches started falling apart. And then the families started falling apart. And the secondary and tertiary effects are massive. They're, they're suicides. They're overdoses. There are people without a sense of inclusion, without a sense of regulation. There are people who feel lost. And the whole system that held these towns together, that gave them their meaning, are gone. So the, the loss isn't just 1.3% of GDP or 50,000 jobs. It's, 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 it's overdoses. It's people's lives. By looking at the data, you don't see how much pain there really is. You don't see the secondary and tertiary effects, which often are greater than the initial effects. We don't have a way to put them in no, you, economic equivalence. You don't equivalence. see what you don't measure, and it's convenient, so you don't measure it. It's convenient for the economists to say, hey, you know, I don't want to know that about that loss because eh, I, I kind of win from free trade. I'm living, living in my neighborhood, and my products are cheaper, and I got long keepers who would take care of my stuff. And, you know, I got a bigger TV. We see the benefits without seeing the loss, and we don't want to look. Because when you look, it's scary. Sociologists look. That's what they do. They, they go there, and they look, and they, and they, they realize that the tertiary and the secondary and tertiary effects are often much, you know, the long-term effects are much bigger than the initial growth. So you get one, you get one more percent of GDP per year, but what, what comes of that is, is 50% of the people don't feel included. 50% of the people feel like they have no sense of, of purpose, no sense of meaning. They've lost their identity. And in my mind, that's a much bigger cost than 1% of GDP. You know, I always, always jokingly say, so, you know, maybe people don't want three iPhones. Maybe they want one iPhone and two friends, <laughs> <Right>. you know? <laughs> sure. And, and, and so we, we've only value, we, the economists, the front row kids have in the database, people only measure those things that can be measured. And that tends to be things that are, are economic, are like, you know, GDP, efficiency, not things like community, not things like the meaning that comes from faith, the meaning that comes from being a member of the church, the sense of being part of a community, all those things that are not the value of union membership, not just in terms of wages, but in terms of friendships, in terms of giving yourself a, a structure. You can't quantify the value of faith. You can't. So we assume faith has no value. I happen to be not very religious personally, but if there's a one, if the biggest change of my life in the last six years is, uh, of this project is understanding the value and importance that comes from religion, you know, statistically, mathematically, there's no value there. Scientifically, what's the value? But when I'm in these towns, when I'm in the field, whatever you want to call it, I try to make a point every weekend to go to a service, you know, a different one every weekend. I, when I'm in town, I go to my local Catholic church because I'm Catholic, but there's just immense value there. And you don't see that. I mean, you can't argue that by numbers. Now, sociologists know that. I'm someone who's spent 
a lot of time as a front row person in council meetings and, and, and what have you. I looked at the photos you posted from Cairo. You pronounced it right. Congratulations. Well, I, I read your article. So you had, the, <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have not have had I not read it. I immediately identified with the engineering projects that I could see in there. You know, the, the nice sidewalks, the decorative lights, the, the paver on the street. Because those were the kind of things, you know, 20 years ago for me in my engineering days, I, I would have been involved in. And, you know, I show up for a meeting and I'm the engineer. I got the spreadsheets. I got the calculations. I got the grant proposal, you know, approved. I got, I got, I got all the stuff ready to go. And the people in the town would show up. And I must admit, and, and you know, this is the, the me of 20 years ago, when they would start talking about the trees and they would start talking about uh, the park and they would start talking about the aspects of their community that I was just, you know, blatantly ignoring. It almost seemed kind of trivial to me. Like, oh, oh, isn't that cute? But here's where the action is. Was that me as just the, the, uh, the front row person not grasping? I think, I think, you know, uh, you know, that we get in our niches, right. And, and your niche was, was, you know, I, I can't speak for you, but I think very much that, Look, I, I, part of the reason I may sound a bit strident is because I'm, you know, like anybody who's born again, you tend to be a bit strident. Um, I mean, I, I was that, I was that economist 20 years ago. I was that person looking at the spreadsheet. I was you walking into the meeting saying, well, look, all you need is a trolley. And everything's solved once you have a trolley. You know, um, <laughs> I'm laughing the, because I've I've not only uttered those words, but that, you know, subsequently heard that said like many many times. I mean, yeah. so I, I look, I get I get where you are coming from, and because that was me. And I guess what I'm saying is, you know, no, <laughs> yeah, that, that's you know, maybe maybe the trolley will work, but you need jobs, you need you need churches, you need you need community, you need people to want to be there. Um, and a trolley isn't going to necessarily, you know, I mean, part of the thing about Cairo that clearly might have resonated with you, but certainly resonated with me was, was that failed attempt at, at keeping something that was sinking afloat. Like it was almost, you can see in my other town where I see that is Bridgeport. It's like an archaeological project of, like you can almost see the strata of different public policy. Here, there's the 40s, there's the 50s, there's the 60s, <laughs> there's the 70s. Each, each, you know, and then eventually, oh, here's the 80s with the the, the minor league baseball team arena put downtown that, you know, <laughs> and here's the 90s with, you know, or maybe it was the 90s that one, and here's the light rail, you know. There's all these attempts at papering over a problem that's much bigger than that. Now, I'm not going to say those aren't fair attempts and they shouldn't be tried. I'm just saying that I think we have a tendency to to try those with and, and as a as a kind of palliative and not look at the bigger problem, you know, the much larger problem. I mean, you know, and Cairo is a is a sad example of a problem where rebuilding your downtown and touting it as historic and putting some, you know, putting some historic looking lamppost and and brick thing is isn't going to save the town. It just now it just looks silly. It looks it makes it it makes a sad town even sadder. It almost looks like something from the Wizard of Oz. There's this, you know, I can almost see the meeting that came up with this plan to revitalize the downtown. And there's this nicely kept, or nice once nicely kept, you know, faux traditional brick road with the, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not good enough about city planning to know what the period of the lamppost is, but it's some it's harking back to some era right. that doesn't exist anymore. It's a nostalgic thing, yeah, yeah. And, there's a, and this, you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna rebuild this town based on nostalgia, without addressing the the current problems, you know. And and so you have this street that this street of nostalgia that is festooned with buildings that are boarded up. And literally nothing else around it. It's in this field. It's just, it's, it's surreal. I spent two days in Cairo and walking around the downtown. And, you know, whenever I'm in towns, I drink a lot of soda. And I usually have to have the issue of where to, where to pee. 
and I that's you know I usually don't have to deal with that because there's McDonald's everywhere, but Cairo has no franchises. There's none. There was no. There was nothing. To, I just peed in fields. I, I peed on the downtown. I didn't have to worry. No one was around. You know, I mean, but there was no there was no stores to to use. There everything was gone. I mean, it was just it was just you know, I think two thousand residents this uh, on this peninsula that it was just two thirds boarded up and with this with this one one sad street, nostalgic street. I've heard you say addiction's a byproduct of despair. If you look at that one street, to me, there's an attempt by the front row people to, you know, say, all right, the the addiction problem we're having here, the despair problem we have here, we we can kind of cheerlead that away. If we do something that that looks nice, uh, maybe people will stop doing drugs and they'll start doing productive things and they'll get jobs and they'll be good front row people like us. How would the group of people who would assert that in their minds, what are they missing? What are they not grasping? I think the, the problems start so much earlier. To use a sociological term, um, a little buzzword, is that, I mean, it's about anime, about the sense of not feeling integrated. I, I don't know feeling, that term. I don't. What is that term? Anime, so it's interesting is, so the way I got to sociology um, or, or got to that buzzword was um, uh, in, my, in my work in the Bronx on addiction, I realized that addiction was a form of suicide. It was a, it was, it was a reckless decision that didn't care about your personal health. It, it was suicide effectively. It was a, fl- a slower form of suicide. And, you know, I, I got there, and, you know, I have you know, some pretty aggressive quotes from people basically saying, I'd, I'd blow my head off if I had the courage. Instead, I'm just basically, you know, jamming a needle in my arm. But it, it's, it's not dissimilar to suicide. It's on the same spectrum. And so I started reading about suicide. And the first person to really think about suicide and why we kill ourselves was the, basically the person who invented sociology, um, Emile Durkheim. Um, and then on his book on sociology, this was written in like 1880, 1890, he, he, he wanted to think about why we killed ourselves, a very human act. And he realized that he, he he came up with the term anime, A-N-O-M-I-E, I believe, anime, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, which is um, the state of feeling not integrated or not regulated or too integrated or too regulated. But the state, effectively, it means, the way I think about it is it means you feel like you don't belong. You can feel like you don't belong because you're not a member of anything, not a valued member of anything. Or you can feel like you don't belong because there's no rules um, and you have no rules to guide you. Um, integration and regulation. And so wherever I go, I see what I say. I always see a lot of anime. I see a, a lot of a lot of places where people don't feel integrated or don't feel regulated. And I think in a place like Cairo, um, people don't feel integrated. They don't feel like they belong to something. They don't feel like they're a value member of something that's larger than themselves. They don't feel like they are valued by the broader society. They don't feel like people care about them. You know, you can use the term left behind. Uh, Cairo is primarily African-American. So, you know, conservatives uh, will happily point to the, you know, the lack of family integration, the lack of family structure as, you know, family providing the integration, family providing the regulation. I'm with them on church. Church provides that um, integration and regulation. But um, I, I think liberals are understand well the addiction that comes in minority communities because, you know, they they look at it and they say, well, you know, they're not included. Minorities are are excluded um, by racism, um, and they have un- their life is unfair to them by our by our structural racism, which is true, which they're right about. And so the addiction can be thought of as kind of a way of coping with that injustice, that structural injustice. And all I've all I've said in my work is that you can apply that to just like liberals apply that kind of framework to the way they think about minorities, you have to apply that framework to the way you think about the entire working class, white, black. But more more than that, you have to apply that to the way you think about people who don't have elite educations. Because I think the, the, the biggest 
the biggest divider in our country right now is education. You know, it's how we, it's the hierarchy we structure ourselves by. So I call the people who have, who don't have an elite education, I call them the back row kids. And that's not meant to be dismissive, but just as a kind of schoolroom analogy. And I think they're the ones who feel like the minority now. They're the ones who feel like the system is stacked against them structurally. They're the ones who feel excluded. I'm not saying it's the same degree. I'm not saying that a, a white with a high school degree has the same injustice as faced by a black with a high school degree, with only a high school degree. We're still an extremely racist country. But that, when you think about it, whites who don't have high school degrees, who don't have college degrees, who only have high school degrees, or don't have high school, you have to think of it the same way you think about uh, minority communities as suffering and injustice and suffering from feeling um, oppressed. One of the things that I hear a lot from my friends and colleagues that are, are front row people is, well, you know, education is the pathway out. So what, what we need to do is we just need to go and, and, you know, get these people some education. So let's send them to college. Let's, uh, you know, put, uh, some Homer in their hands and, uh, you know, get them in a math classroom. I come from a family that I was one of the earliest ones to, to go to college. And, uh, I look around and a, a lot of my, you know, younger cousins and, and one of my brothers and, and what have you, uh, did go on and, and go to college and I'm, I'm happy for them, but I have more in my family that didn't than did. And the idea that like education is their answer seems a little like ludicrous to me. And, and almost, you know, if you are a college professor, for, for example, a little self-serving, what is the balance there? I think we over reward education and we over reward certain educations far too much you know we the educational experience i see i see that is much the much more common educational experience is going to like ivy tech in gary indiana or going to kellogg community college and um and um battle creek or you know doing night school while raising a family or you know basically community colleges and small state schools and religious institutions. But we don't consider those education, even though they are. Um, we only re basically reward a handful of college degrees, um, and then we over-reward them. Uh, look, I don't disagree with you. Not everybody is meant for college. Not everybody has skill sets that excel in college. And not and the, the skill sets that excel in colleges, I think, aren't necessarily skill sets that are more valid, you know, what's wrong with somebody who's extraordinarily good at, at fixing cars or someone who, who's dedicated to what, what, you know, what we call the, what I call the decency of hard work, you know, who just wants to come in and you know, as a skilled carpenter or a trade, those things are valuable skills. And I think we should treat them as, as with high, as high a status as we do a college professor. But more than that, I think there's a very, there's a very nasty, side effect to our idea that you can just get, you know, beyond more than just being self-serving, telling, telling people, well, just go get an education is, is also very much your value set. You know, it's you know, a lot of people in these towns I go to are torn and they want to stay where they are. And, and not only that, but they have to stay where they are. They have family obligations, you know, they have to take care of their mother or their grandparents, or they have to be there for their, you know, there was, there was a kid who was going to community college in Reno, Reno, Nevada. And he had gotten a scholarship to go out of state and he didn't take it. And, and I said, you know, why? And he said, well, my mom's an addict, you know, and I have to be here for her. You know, she had, she had raised him and his brother by herself in and out of jail. And they had stuck with her then. And now she's clean and they need to be there for her. So, you know, he can't. And quite honestly, I think he's making the better decision. Our society doesn't reward that. But what I was going to say is there's even there's an even more pernicious side effect to this idea that just go get an, anybody can get an education and get themselves out of Cairo or get themselves out of Gary or get themselves out of Prestonburg, Kentucky. It's that those who don't get themselves out, it's now their fault. It's that, well, you're just obviously you're too dumb to have done it or too lazy. So the people who choose not to go or can't go or 
just aren't equipped to go because, you know, to go out of state to go to scare, you know, it, it, first of all, it's an immensely big thing for many people who come from a working class town. They don't know any better. They don't know any different. And they, again, it's leaving their family. That's huge. You know, why are we to say to someone, you know, what's best for you is to rip, rip away from your family, the people rip away from your place that, that values you and then go off. And so if they don't do it, then we said, well, you know, you're, I guess you're dumb. It's making the implication that it's their fault. It's their fault for having not succeeded for having, you know, and, and again, it, 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 we underestimate, we, we highlight the stories of the few people who have pulled themselves by the bootstraps, who've overcome immense odds, who threaded the needle to get out of their towns and make something of themselves. And we, we raise those to almost kind of mythical figures. And by doing that, we demean those who haven't or chose not to or couldn't. Did you read Hillbilly Elegy last year when it came uh, out? I skimmed it. I haven't. He, J.D. has been very, very sweet to me, and I, I owe it to him to read his book. I just, I'm in the middle of writing my own book, so it's kind of one of those things I, all I can focus on. Totally get it. Yeah. It's one of those things where, you know, I, I did go through it and I thought there were many parts of it that were beautiful and that, you know, being from a small town and I could relate to a, a scary amount of it. I found the reaction of a lot of people kind of disconcerting because it, it was that, you know, here's someone who threaded the needle. Here's someone who came over to the, the front row and, uh, you know, let's have a little fun, you know, poking fun at uh, these dysfunctional small town people who are addicted to drugs and, and uh, f have a hard time finding work at, and, you know, and doing crazy things. I don't know if you caught any of that around the book or if, uh, I, I've spoken to, to JD Vance. Um, we have our disagreements politically. I haven't read it closely enough to, to, to talk about it. I know that that that's what many people think about the book. I always say that, if you see a group behaving differently than you and you assign that behavior to something atavistic, you're doing it wrong. If you assign a group's behavior to an atavistic quality, meaning they're an aggro, like if you look at people suffering from addiction and you say they're lazy or they're weak, if you look at a group of people you disagree with politically and say they're dumb or they're racist, I think you're doing it wrong. I think you have to look at things and you have to look at behavior in the context from which it arises and the social political context from which it arises. Just like, again, when we look at, and I put myself as a liberal, when progressives look at the dysfunction in minority, poor minority communities, the drugs, the crime, the breakdown of the family, they rightfully say, hold on a second, let's not, you know, this isn't about personal failings. It's about a systematic failing. It's about racism. It's about unfair access to jobs, unfair access to education, unfair application of the law. I think you need to say that about any group, I'm not, not just minorities. I think that's true when you look at working class whites and the way they behave and what, what, what we perceive to be their dysfunctions. I think you need to look at it in the same perspective of look at the context, look at the political context, look at the socioeconomic context, and take that into account when you look at someone's behavior. I think that's certainly true with addicts. So when you say, you know, here's all these people live in Kentucky who are getting hooked on drugs, rather than say it's about personal weakness, and my mind is always best to say, well, let's look at the structure they grew up in. Let's see the system they grew up in, how it treated them. I want to ask you about community, because you seem to suggest that part of what I think would help is more of a sense of community and more of an empowerment of community. The, the, the bonds, the guy in Reno who is staying home to, to look after his mom. I mean, his mom's clean, but... We all understand that there's a fine line you walk and having people around you to help you walk that line is, is going to be part of keeping yourself straight. There's a lot of positive aspects of community. 
But whenever we at Strong Towns here talk about community, we, we always have people stand up and say, you know, that's great, Chuck, but community is pretty oppressive too. Community, uh, you know, really, um, is restraining on people. It, uh, you know, sometimes is racist and bigoted. I respect that response, but I'm at kind of at a loss sometimes and I don't know what to do with it. I, I think, uh, look, I think I, I grew up in a small town that had quite a bit of community and it didn't like me. Um, so I'm, I'm a front row, I'm a front row kid who left my town because my town wasn't, wasn't kind to me. I had different political views in my town. I, um, I like to read books. Um, I didn't fit in, you know, I was, I was effectively expelled, <laughs> ostracized, um, in my mind, you know, I, you know, I could have stuck it out there. Um, it wouldn't have been the best place for me because just, you know, you know as your, as your listeners say, community standards sometimes can exclude people. And I would have been one of the people excluded from my community. So I left amongst other reasons. Look, it's a push and pull, right? No. Like that question right there to me is the ultimate push and pull that we're going to have in our country going forward is providing local meaning and valuing local meaning, but at the same time balancing against it with individual rights and individual liberty. In, in, in my view, and this is solely my view right now, it might be different six months from now, is I think we've gone too far from accepting, from, from obsession with everybody being able to do their own thing and celebrating that and making that ultimately the most sacred act, you know, celebrate yourself, do whatever you want, feel good, you know, define your morality alone without regard to the community. I don't know how you balance the two because both of them, you know, you need to, you need to maintain somehow in my mind, you need to respect individual liberty but at the same time, do so in a way that respects community as well. I just feel like where we've gotten in the last 30 years or so is a place that's gone too far in one direction, away from community and more towards, you know, anything goes at the individual level. But, you know, every, both systems come with downside, believe me. I know that from a personal standpoint. You know, and I get a lot of pushback from people, rightfully so, when they when I talk about, you know, the front row, back row thing. They said, well, look, I, hey, I, I grew up in a back row town and it, it, it wasn't, you know, when I, talk, when I talk about how front row kids can be condescending and, and, and exclusive, they're like, well, the back row town can be condescending, it can be exclusive and angry, and they kicked me out. And I, you know, I, I grew up a lesbian in, in a small southern town and I wanted to leave as quick as I could. And I get that. I get that. Because, you know, you know I, I, that wasn't my story, but my story was a variation of that. I'm not saying that back row towns are not exclusive, are not prone to throwing people out, not prone to small-mindedness. But I'm just saying that both, both sides do it. They do it in different ways, but both sides do it. And I'm not just saying one's better than the other. I'm just observing how they are. The front row excludes people if they don't have a certain, if they don't believe in a certain political views, if they don't, if they don't get the right education, if they don't believe in certain sacred political tenets, like, you know, you, you have to, you have to believe in, you can't believe in church, you have to, you have to believe in science, you have to believe in all these things, you know, you have to believe the set, standard sets of beliefs, and if not, then you're, you're condescended towards. And the back row, says, you know, you have to believe this too. And if you don't, we're going to get nasty and exclude you from our town. So it's, you know, both, both sides are exclusionaries. Both, both, both are equally bad. I get introduced to a group of friends in New York. And the, the question is, well, what do you do? You know, where'd you go to college? And I, I get introduced to a, a group of friends here in my small town. And it said, well, who's, who are your parents? Exactly. You know, where do you go to church? They're different community signals, right? I, think I, I keep on saying there are different worldviews, and I'm not saying one is more valid than the other. I'm just simply saying here they are. This is how they think. And to the degree that we can understand each other, if you want to minimize political conflict going forward, we, it's, it's best to understand each other rather than demonize each other. And both sides do it. Both sides demonize the other. So, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not choosing sides here. Right. If you look at Hunt's point, 
which you brought up earlier and take the, the small town analog of that, you know, a place that is, uh, is very white, but kind of equally poor or, or disadvantaged, or, or if we just want to say struggling with addiction and despair, what are the things that those places have in common that we can learn from? What you have is, it's interesting, is there, there is a place exactly like that. And that's a, one, of the things I, one of the things that struck me was Portsmouth, Ohio. I see a lot of towns, white working class towns that have it bad, but I've never seen anything that had it as bad as Hunts Point until I went to Portsmouth. And there you have, uh, like you had in um, Hunts Point, you had um, open air street prostitution sex work. You have intergenerational addiction. You have people born in dysfunction, born in, born addicted, born to parents who are in jail. And in both cases, you have just a, a cult. I don't want to use the word culture because that's, that has a negative connotations, but you have a system and a place that has become so broken that addiction is just normal. It's just part, it's, you know, kids grow up just seeing it as normal. It's, you know, drugs and drugs and violence and, and prostitution are things that just take place within your view. To grow up, there means to have to navigate those issues. You can't stay away from them. You have to make a choice. Um, do you do them? Do you not do them? In my mind, as a, as a classic liberal, I'd say that what's driving both of them is the same problem, which is just no jobs, no access. There's a lack of access to resources, both in terms of work, in terms of education, in terms of uh, a breakdown of kind of basic thing, you know, just no power for the world, for people who work. Once you lose a job, I mean, Portsmouth used to have um, factories and they're gone. I, where, their, where their steel mill is, was is now Walmart. I mean, I, I don't think you can get much more of a, it's a Walmart parking lot actually, but I'm not sure you can get much more of a kind of <laughs> a more physical representation of what I think a lot of the recent problems are. It's gone. And in both cases, you have populations who live there who don't have jobs, don't have access to good jobs, good jobs, meaning jobs that provide stability, jobs that provide a paycheck that's stable enough that you can plan and build a future and build a family. And the man can get a job and find the respect that comes from that job can then focus on, on having children and raising children and being there for his kids and building a family and all the things that come from that. It very much comes down to jobs, 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 jobs. Neither of the places have jobs. And you can look at, you know, another another example is um, the traditional black neighborhood in Milwaukee, it's called Northside. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time in Northside. And Northside kind of worked in the 50s. I mean, there was still structural racism. Um, and there's and the blacks were unfairly confined to Northside, literally confined to Northside. They couldn't go south of North Avenue and they couldn't go north of another avenue. I forget the name. At night, they could live. That's the only place they could live. They could work else they could work in the factories but they couldn't live anywhere else but the, you know talking to the elderly members of Northside who are now in their 80s they look back fondly on, on that period even despite that racism despite that because they had jobs you know they had all most of them had moved up from Mississippi and Alabama in the forties and fifties. And they said, I, you know, if I, if I got fired from one job, I literally walked across the street to the next factory and got another job. I didn't want to necessarily only live in this neighborhood, but I made the best of it. I, I got, I got married. I raised my kids. And then that started changing in the eighties and nineties. The factory started going. And once the factory started going, you couldn't walk out of high school into a job. You know, the biggest thing I hear across the country, and the, to me, the most important thing is people used to be able to walk out of high school into a decent job. They walked out of the high school into a factory, and that factory gave them a stability, and that's gone. So you ask, what, what's the similarities between, regardless of the race, I'm not saying that poor black communities, poor minority communities don't have it worse. I'm not saying that they don't have the double whammy of economics and racism, but what both share is economics, which is jobs, jobs, jobs. If someone 
wanted to, because uh, you're doing a labor of love right now. If someone wanted to honor that in in some way, is it to to follow you on on Twitter and share your stuff? Is it to follow you on Medium? Like what what what? what, um, what? I'm, I'm kind of backing off of social media because social media is nasty. <laughs> it is. It's it's very nasty. Yeah. So yep. yeah, I'm I'm basically backing off of social media for two reasons: as I'm writing a book, which is taking up all my energy, and the other is um is social media is nasty and counterproductive in my mind. I I say that despite it having given me a lot of success and giving me a nice platform. It's just gotten to the point where it just, it's, it's, it doesn't make me happy. And I just find it to be um, just the amount of anger on it is just phenomenal. I, I would like people to follow me on Twitter. I'll, I'll go back to Twitter once I finish writing this book. You know, I love people if they bought my book when it comes out. <laughs> I don't know when it's going to come. I don't know when it's going to come out. And I don't think it will be as, um, um, it will be as as eloquent as what I just wrote said, hopefully, <laughs> or not. I don't know, but um, yeah. Well, um, let me know. know when it does because we would love to have you back on. Yeah, uh, to it's, talk it's kind about of angling. It. I'm angling for September eight. It's not you know the thing about books is even when you hand in manuscript, it takes like another nine months to a year. So mine's going to come with a lot of pictures, and so beautiful. Um, but well. I really appreciate you taking the time. You take care. Thanks you so much. Yep. Bye. Bye bye. What a delightful conversation. Thank you everybody for listening and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.